Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. As always, thank you for listening. We're going to talk today about travel and about probably one of the biggest trends in travel, which is foodie travel. A lot of people travel in order to try the national dishes of the places they're going to. But does such a thing even exist? Our next guest has written an entire book about this idea. Her name is Anya von Bremsen. Her book is National Dish Around the World in Search of Food, History, and the Meaning of Home. Hey, Anya, thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Welcome. Thank you, Pauline. Thanks for having me. Well, it's an absolutely fascinating book, and you started in France because that's where the idea of a national cuisine was born, right? Exactly. How did that come to be? Well, it's hard to believe, but the whole idea of national cuisine is actually fairly new. Because when you think about what was happening 200, 300 years ago, there were no nation states, as we understand them. There were huge empires. And for me, one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I myself come from an empire, the former empire called the USSR, which no longer exists on maps, which was a multicultural entity consisting of 15 ethnic republics. And I wrote my first cookbook called Please to the Table about the cuisines of the empire. But then the empire went bust as, as, as I was writing you. And suddenly you had 15 new countries. That, wow. that was in the early 90s. And Yugoslavia separated into separate countries. So when you think about it, um, to think in terms of national dishes and national cuisines and national identity, it's something that's really fairly recent, and it's always fascinated me. Right. Well, I remember learning about the French Revolution, and I don't know if this was in your book, but I remember learning that the first restaurants appeared after the French Revolution. And I, after reading your book, I think this may be apocryphal, but I, at the time, I had heard it was because so many of the lords who kept personal chefs uh, were killed or or at least driven from their mansions. And those personal chefs had had to start restaurants feeding the masses. Uh, and so the, the idea of the restaurant was born. But that's not quite right, is it? It is rather apocryphal. Yes, that was the <laughs> view before. But uh, there was this great dish, a great book by uh, Rebecca Spang, uh, who actually proved that there, um, the restaurant, restaurant in French means restorative. And they were named after restorative broths, the bouillons. Huh. Uh, and they, the first restaurants were kind of, you know, the modern idea of a health spa where for the first time in history, diners could go uh, be by themselves, not share a table as it was previously done in taverns, uh, sit at their own private table, order from uh, their own menu, and uh, indulge in something that was really healthy, that was really good for you. But France is a logical place to start any discussion of national culture or national dish, because they really explicitly connected food to national identity. Food was part of what now you would call brand France. You know, they started branding their own idea of a nation. And uh, so much of the contemporary idea of nation comes from the French Revolution. As a sovereign entity with its own constitution, governed in the name of the people, and 
very early on, food became part of France's soft power. Right. And you had uh, the very first cookbook to ever say, this is the cookbook of the cuisine of a country, of France, that was created in France. Was it, uh, tell me the name of, of that cookbook. It was uh, by uh, Lavarin, François Lavarin, and it was called Le Cuisinier François, the French cook. And it was the first cookbook to actually use a national uh, title. Because before right. that, what happened, the cuisine was very stratified. We think now they have this romantic idea that peasants all they ate so well, you know, this Marie Antoinette idea, but the only people who ate well were the aristocracy and the courts. And the court cuisines of Europe and even some Islamic cuisines were fairly sim- similar. You had this huge roasted birds like peacocks or herons, uh, you had a lot of sugar in the dishes. You had a lot of spices. And that book, La Cuisinière Française, is the first one to kind of articulate a modern sensibility and connect it to the idea of France. Right. I, I, I remember in your book, you talk about the fact that the high-end cuisine probably tasted like very bad Indian food uh, because it was so overladen with spices. But he brought in the idea uh, that a cabbage soup should taste like cabbage, that it really should uh, taste like the elemental ingredients uh, it, it was made of, which is a very modern idea. It's interesting that this was, what, the 17th century when this became the big concept? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and it no. was France that first articulated that concept. And it sort of held on to its gastronomic, uh, the sense of it being a gastronomic superpower. Until quite recently. And then it kind of started going badly for France. Other countries emerged. Other cuisines emerged. And the, Fra- the French were beginning to lose their gastronomic supremacy. So I opened the book in Paris, looking at a very classic, truly national dish called the pot à feu, which is essentially a boiled dinner. And seeing how it was faring right now in a globalized, completely international, transnational city like Paris, which is full of immigrants, which is full of tourists, and where Parisians right now are all talking about the latest Miscal bar or a Bau burger. Mm, right. So it, it, was, it was an interesting experience. And I've, I was finding, finding that a lot of the French were turning away from this idea of a national dish. They were tired of this conversation. You know, yeah. The governments are trying to push this idea. They're trying to get UNESCO status uh, for different dishes. But the people want to eat as globalized people eat. So yeah. that, was, that was an interesting first experience. And from there, I yeah. went to Naples, which is a cradle of pizza. Yes, absolutely. And you tell the story of Margarita and how Margarita... Uh, was or wasn't a mythological, well, no, she, she was a real person, but whether or not she had the, uh, she had, well, the, you tell the story. If you could tell the story of Margarita, because I thought that really kind of brought in so many strands of the pizza story. Well, the pizza is inarguably connected to Naples. Some dishes are disputed, a lot of dishes are disputed, but pizza as we know it, as a flatbread with tomato sauce and with possibly cheese, it's something that is prepared and baked according to a certain technique in the Neapolitan domed oven is something that is indisputably Neapolitan. And the pizza margarita... Before you link that, I thought it was fascinating that that domed oven 
might go back or does go back to Pompeii. They're so discovered, is- yes, they've discovered very similar ovens. So it is, in fact, a very old technique. And the other interesting thing about pizza, before we talk about margarita, that uh, we think of pizza as being a national dish, all Italian mm-hmm. dish. But even you know, in, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, people from northern Italy wrote horrible things about it. For instance, Collodi, Pinocchio's creator, he compared uh-huh. it to complicated filth, you know, that attracted flies. You know, they were disgusted oh. by pizza. Pizza was a poor people's food. Uh, Naples had an urban density 10 times of Victorian London in 19th century. Yeah. And pizza was something you could have very cheaply and it was fairly nutritious. And one Neapolitan writer called it il pronto soccorso dello stomaco, which means the first aid of the stomach. And then the story of pizza margarita. And pizza margarita is some, it's a classic pizza with mozzarella, tomatoes, and basil, the colors of the Italian flag, white, uh, green, and red, the tricolore. Right. And the whole story was that pizza, Queen Margarita, after the unification of Italy, because let's not forget that there was no country called Italy right. before the unification, a process that started in the 1860s. So Queen Margarita comes to Naples. She orders, supposedly orders a pizza. A pizzaiolo, a pizza maker called Branzi, delivers it to the palace. Uh, and she likes it so much, she allows it to be named after her. And that's a, right. that's a story repeated everywhere, even in academic work. But one scholar Absolutely. from Harvard uh, went into all the documentation and he found absolutely no evidence of uh, this being the case. So he mm. called the whole story a fake lore. As a, right. you know, not folklore, but fake lore that suited the particular agendas of the royal palace because they wanted to portray their queen as making a populist gesture because Naples, again, was not just a poor city. It had terrible cholera epidemics. So here comes right. Margarita. She tastes the dish of the people. And in fact, she was she was a hygiene buff. So it's actually yeah. unlikely that she would you know, eat with the people. She was obsessed with health. And then you spoke with somebody else who felt that, no, no, this probably did happen, right? They, uh, yes, there's a scholar called Matozzi and, and his daughter, Daniela. Um, she thought that she did actually taste the pizza, but it wasn't delivered to the palace as, as the story. And it certainly probably wasn't by this pizzeria Brandi. Uh, which kind of just wanted to market its own product. Um, <laughs> right. So, yes, there's all these disputes, but here, here you have this iconic dish and myth and story repeated about it. And in fact, it turns out to be completely untrue. But my question is, yeah. does it matter that these stories mm. are half invented or completely invented? Because the thing about national identity and national cuisine is something that people really internalize. They make it their own. They want to believe the stories. It's part of the national pride. Um, Naples has suffered tremendously after the unification uh, because it was a kingdom, the capital of kingdoms, and then it lost everything. So food became a huge point of pride. Right. So in a way, it's, some stories are very new. Some stories about food are fake. But... My question is, does it really matter? Well, and you also talk about the pizza effect. Can you talk about that? Because I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Pizza effect is a term coined by an Indian anthropologist, I believe, actually, to describe yoga. And what it refers to is to a phenomenon that's exported abroad, like, you know, yoga did from India and came to other countries, or pizza went to the Americas with the Italian immigrants. 
And there abroad, it becomes such a success that it returns to the place of oranges, but it kind of changes in the process and it changes how the people feel about it. So who knows if pizza didn't become such a success abroad and such a huge thing in America, would it become Italian national dish? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was really something that was only in the South. And and for those of us who have been reading and watching My Brilliant Friend yes. and, and have learned about Naples through that, which was this, as you said earlier, this place of, of teeming masses, of deep poverty, of, of social stratification in, in this really unique, strange way. And the mafia uh, and the Camorra. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. Things. And also the sense of wounded price because, uh, pride, I'm sorry, because before the unification, uh, Naples was the capital of the kingdom of Due Sicilia. It was uh, the seat of the Bourbons. It was, it actually had a sense of great pride, but the unification really did the job on the South. Um, yeah. Because it was a Northern hashed project. It was something that, you know, was hatched in Torino. Um, so, to this day, the Neapolitans have this great sense of injustice, of something being taken away from them. And now having pizza as a pride, it, it, makes, a, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. It's really and, and, a huge and, and, part of the identity of the city. Right. And to be fair, I mean, there may be something to their wounded pride. I mean, the South has always suffered economically uh, in comparison to, the, uh, to Northern Italy. I once read that if you were to cut off Italy below Rome and don't include the Amalfi Coast, it would be one of the poorest countries in Europe. And yet Italy as, as a whole is a very prosperous country, but this has always been a country that, that or a section of a country that, that kind of got short shrift. Yes. Or so the Southern Italians believe. And, and, and they believe that very strongly, strongly, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And we're speaking to you right now from Istanbul where you live for part of the year. And you have a fascinating chapter set there where you talk about the mez plate, which is a, you know, a plate of small dishes that is very, very common when you visit Turkey and how that kind of reflects the Ottoman Empire. I had never realized that. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about the mez plate? Yes, meze. meze I mean, meze are common to the Middle East. They have them in the Levant, in Lebanon, but the Turkish meze have a particular significance. So you have this tray of small plates, and on, on the tray you have an Armenian dish, for instance, called topik, which is mashed chickpeas with caramelized onion, the kind of pate. You have something called Albanian liver, which is a delicious dish of fried liver with wisps of raw onions. You have another mm. dish called Circassian chicken, and Circassian is uh, um, a minority from the Caucasus. You have a salad called American salad or Russian salad, which is kind of a mayonnaise salad. So you have all this, all this, and you have a lot of kind of Greek, Greek dishes. Why? Because as was the case in, with the Soviet Union where I grew up, empires used to be multicultural entities. They didn't right. believe in nation, in national identity. Nationalism was a great enemy of imperial cosmopolitanism. Istanbul was a city where, until the Republic was founded in 1923, was about to celebrate the anniversary by Atatürk, after the mm. Ottoman Empire was defeated. 
most people spoke uh, different languages. On the streets, you heard Greek, Armenian. Uh, there was a sizable Sephardic community that was here uh, since the day of the Inquisition. So the food reflected that multiculturalism because um, the Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire was not Turkey was not Turkey was not really a term that was even used. Turkish was not an identity. As part of an empire, huh. you were an Armenian, a Greek, an Albanian, a Circassian. So that's that's a very interesting story. But when you have nation states that promote their story as as a unified nation, everything changes. So there you yeah. have a national cuisine that becomes less multicultural. So through the message tray, through all these different dishes, I tried to trace what exactly happens. So I went to talk to a Sephardic expert on Sephardic cuisine, a Jewish lady. I went to talk to an Armenian lady. I went to talk to Albanians and um, to just see how how the memories of that multiculturalism survive through the food. Because often food, right. even, even as the populations change and people left, now Istanbul is multicultural, but in a very different way. There are lots of Russians, right. for instance. Um, but the memories often live through the dishes. Yeah. And, and you talk about in this chapter also about the fact that there are dishes that really could be claimed by many different places. Hummus, for example, or different types of, of borek uh, or kebabs, or and, and how I, I hadn't even realized that the UNESCO World Heritage List of Intangible Cultural um, uh, Gems, uh, that's probably not the right term heritage for it. Heritage is called, yes, Intangible uh, Cultural Heritage. The each intangible list. Cult- yes. Right. It's very, very controversial because they are they're tr- they're fixing different food types in different places, and there are many cultures that claim certain dishes. Right? Yes, it's, it is. In fact, you know, they they started including food in 2010 uh, with giving France the first nod. I think it was France and Mexico. The national, the meal. I think the gastronomic meal of the French. Um, right. And the whole idea was behind it was to supposedly decolonize heritage. Uh, but in fact, it proved to be something else because there are so many dishes, especially in the region that is Turkey, that was formerly Mesopotamia, Levant, that was formerly part of the Ottoman Empire, where dishes existed long before national borders. And for instance, UNESCO gave lavash, flatbread, to Armenia. And Turkey and Azerbaijan and Central Asia just went into a total uproar about it and you know, filed a counter-petition. <laughs> then UNESCO gave dolma, stuffed vegetables, to Azerbaijan, huh. which is a mortal enemy currently of Armenia. Uh, huh. So the Armenians were completely... So it's, it's always, in this region, it's, it's always extremely complicated because, again, as I write so much, in national dish, the current borders and the current ideas of a nation-state just didn't exist it came much later than the dishes themselves. Right. And now right. because yeah. of branding, because as you mentioned at the start of your show, uh, food tourism is such a huge uh, thing and gastronomic gastronomy is part of a national brand. It's, it's all actually worth quite a lot of money, either to yeah. producers of individual foods or to the countries that, that promote them. There are all these bitter disputes about who owns a particular dish. Right. I, I had no idea. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating. So back to tourism, if somebody does want to travel to eat, 
what should be their mindset? I, I, after reading this book, I think to heck with looking for the national dish. That's a bit absurd. But but I guess you can go for local cuisine, right? I think a lot of the regional dishes are also inventions. I don't mm. I don't think because uh, don't forget that regions also were divided between countries before that migrated from one country to another, like the case of Alsace in France. Mm. I think sure. what people should be looking for is a sense of deeper connection, just beyond the yum yum, what I call the yum yum tourism. Just oh, let's have something delicious, and uh, we're done, and just kind of. Check, put a check next to, oh, I had bouillabaisse in Marseille or pizza in Naples. What I was hoping to do with National Dish, the book, is for people to look for deeper connections, to understand how food figures in history. And sometimes that history is not sunny and sometimes it's complicated. And identities are complicated and identities shift. My final Mm -hmm. chapter, the epilogue, is about borscht, the beet soup. That I grew up with right. as, as a Russian person in Moscow, but that after the war, especially, Ukrainians insisted uh, on claiming as their national dish completely correctly. Uh-huh. But what happened to our identities, like my mom, she's, she was born in Odessa. Both her parents uh, are from cities that are now in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. We didn't identify as Ukrainian. We identified as Jewish, Russian-speaking emigres, Americans. But the war... Right. And our hatred of Putin and of Russia's aggression really made made us rethink so many things. And uh, yeah. my mom certainly identifies a lot more as a Ukrainian than she ever did. Hmm. Well, fascinating. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, I, I thank you so much, not only for speaking to me, but for this really thought-provoking, uh, fascinating look at at national identities. I thought I was reading a food book, but it really was a, a book of philosophy and history. And it, it, it's just a wonderful, wonderful read. So thank you so much. Thank you Anya. so much. And just to say, this is where food should be leading into this other discussions. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Our next guest has some funny things to report. She is Melanie Fish. She is the spokesperson for Hotels.com. And they just did their inaugural room service report, which doesn't sound like it would be funny, but boy, did they uncover weird stuff. Hey, Melanie, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Hi, Pauline. It's good to hear your voice. Are you someone who thinks room service is a necessity or a luxury? Neither. I think room service should be avoided. I'm I'm in the destination to get out of my room. So I, I almost never do room service. I like to be out on the streets and seeing where the people are. But I, I think I'm in the minority there. Well, for me, it's a treat. Every once in a while, I just really like to wake up and have a leisurely breakfast in the in the room. But it's definitely a treat. Oh, yeah. Well, breakfast. I guess I uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do room service for, for breakfast. I, I never like to do it for dinner. Although you found that a very American dish is the most popular room service order. And that's not just in the United States. This kind of blew my mind. So what is the top room service order? The number one most ordered item is... <laughs> 
a hamburger. And that may not sound that interesting, but to me it was because Hotels.com is uniquely positioned to put together a report on room service, not only because it has access to hundreds of thousands of hotel partners, but because Hotels.com has a long history of looking at the cost and the peculiarities of dining in hotels. They used to do, about a decade ago, a club sandwich index, which was a barometer Mm. of how much it costs to eat at hotels. Because at the time, the club sandwich was the go-to item on hotel Mm. But now it's a hamburger. And while every hotel has its own spin on a hamburger, but I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw that there is actually a hotel in Houston that serves a $1,600 burger. Oh, my goodness. And uh, it comes with what that makes it so... Pricey. I, I gotta wonder. It can't just be the beef. It, it Is it be the real beef. wagyu? It, well, that's what they say. It's at the Post Oak Post Oak Hotel in Houston. Sixteen ounces of wagyu, foie gras on top, and black mm-hmm. truffle in a caviar infused gold brioche bun. <laughs> I don't well, know. There's a sucker born every minute, isn't oh. there? I wonder how much of those they sell. That just seems absurd to me. I got to tell you. I would uh, be but to know as well. Yeah. Uh, well, and I got to wonder, you know, you're supposed to tip the person who delivers the room service. What the heck do you tip on that? You can't just, you know, slap a couple of dollar bills on the tray. That's actually a really good question. Uh, I was surprised at the hotels that told us that $100 is a very standard amount people are paying for room service. And, you know, frankly, it's a reason it's a luxury to me because that, you know, $15 bacon and eggs, once you have service fees, delivery fees, and the tip, that can really add up. Yeah, but, you know, I I thought there there were some contradictions in your survey. You found on the one hand that people were spending $100, which is a pretty good amount. But on the other hand, you found that while, I'm going to read right from this, while diners indulge in sushi rolls and lobster tails at restaurants, 43% of U.S. hotels said that guests prefer casual cuisine behind closed doors. So is is it that all of these burgers are really expensive? I think room service is just a pricier way to dine than going out to a restaurant. So I don't think that it's contradictory in that people are ordering fancy foods. I just think room service bills tend to add up. It was a rainy New York night recently, and my daughter and I were huddled up in our hotel room, and we couldn't resist ordering a couple desserts off the room service menu. (laughs) And uh, yeah, that bill was kind of a shocker when I checked out. So people yeah, are really yeah. ordering a lot of comfort foods is what we found right. in, in the report. Well, we'll get back to some of the, the really kind of luxury items you can order through room service, which are, you know, uh, I think largely PR, but, but they're interesting that they, they talk to somebody's creativity. But to my mind, what was most interesting about your study was when people get inside their private hotel rooms, they have no compunction about 
letting their freak flags fly. They, they enjoy getting very weird things on the room service menu or actually off the menu. Uh, like number one, people have ordered diet water. I mean, Pauline, wouldn't that just be water? That was so funny. Yeah. I want that special. So how did, how did that come about? What was the story behind that? We asked our hotel partners who list their rooms on Hotels.com, what are the most unusual things you've had people ask you for? And diet water topped the list, followed by melted ice cream. Do you think they charged extra to melt the ice cream for the person? Couldn't you just wait 20 minutes and melt your own ice cream? Yeah. And frankly, if you're ordering room service, you always uh, have the risk of melted ice cream. I never order ice cream from room service because half the time it's not, you know, it's it takes a while to get there. It's going to melt. They, the, the third was blowfish. That That's feels- a person who likes to live dangerously. That, that felt dangerous to me. I, I have misgivings about ordering that in a restaurant, much less delivered to my room. Right. And then boiled bottled water. Was this outside of the U.S. or was this somebody who just was scared? I actually don't know which hotel it was. I know it was in the U.S., but people seem to be quite particular about their water, don't they? They want diet water. They want to make sure yeah. that bottled water has been boiled. Maybe it just was someone who was being extra cautious. Yeah, no, I thought that was fascinating. And then uh, this one I kind of liked. I thought this was a sweet idea. One of the guests went fishing and wanted that fish to be cooked up and served to them. <laughs> I, I want to know who cleaned the fish. I wouldn't mind cooking mm. the fish, but if they gave me the whole fish and asked me to clean it for them, I might have a problem with that. And it was followed on the list by another fishy kind of item, cockle popcorn. I have to confess, I had to Google that. Yeah, what is that? Well, cockle is a cousin to a clam. It's a mollusk. And uh-huh. I think it's actually a popular pub item. Huh. But I've never seen it in the U.S. on a room service menu. It's it's basically fried cockles, these cousin to a clam, and they actually do pop when you put them in oil. So cockle popcorn. Now, I'm not sure if you heard about the big scandal involving James Corden, the the talk show host, but he and his wife went to Balthazar Restaurant in New York City. She ordered what is number seven on your list, which is a no egg white omelet. So an omelet made entirely with egg yolks, and which is an expensive thing to do, you would think. And uh, James Corden, it was scandalous because not only did she order this, but he apparently was incredibly rude to the staff. And so the head of the that restaurant put it up on Instagram. Actually, his name is Keith McNally. He's got a great Instagram if you like to follow it. He puts up like the nightly reports from his different restaurants about what got sent back and how people acted badly. It's it's weirdly fascinating. But I thought it was fascinating that that not only does James Corden's wife want this thing, I'd never heard of, of all yolk omelets before that happened. I had heard that story about Balthazar, but I had no idea that it was over a no egg white omelet. I hadn't heard that. And I thought, surely they just misspoke with this room service order because, of course, we've heard of all egg white omelets, but an all yolk omelet, I had never heard of that before. 
Yeah, no, weird. I guess somebody with a yen for protein. Now, you also go uh, into out-of-the-ordinary room service experiences, and you talk about one at the Milestone Hotel in London that defines the word indulgent. What what goes on there? If pe- What can people order there? Okay, if we have hamburgers on one end of the spectrum, this is a room service option on the other end of the spectrum. You can treat yourself to a world-class musical performance with an in-room wow. concert from the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Yes. They that must have, be a big room. Exactly. A big room and a big price tag. They said to inquire if you're interested. So I think that <laughs> actually goes along with the caviar hotline um, at one of the other hotels that made the report this uh, year, that if you have right. to ask how much something costs, you probably can't afford it. So I would put the caviar on the caviar hotline and the orchestra in that category. Yes. And then you also have at a castle. So I guess it shouldn't be surprising. There are luxury treats. But this one was for kids. Kids who go to Ashford Castle in County Mayo, Ireland. What can they get there? I thought this one was sweet. A special Lego butler will present... And it doesn't necessarily have to be for a child. I guess if you're into Legos, it could be for you. We'll we'll present your Lego selection on a silver tray delivered to your room. I thought that was one kind of sweet. Yeah, yeah. And there's another one that really speaks to the local culture or to maybe a, I don't know, a commodification of the local culture. At the Intercontinental in Bora Bora, your... Your room service is delivered to your door, but because your room is an overwater villa, how does it get delivered? Well, in an outrigger canoe, of course. I've not stayed in one of these over-the-water bungalows, but it is on my dream list. And now I can add to my dream list having room service delivered in a traditional outrigger canoe. Please tell me you would change your view on ordering room service, Pauline, if you could have it delivered in this setting. Um, no, really, but anyway. (laughs) And at the Plaza Hotel, I thought this was a very cute tie-in. What is the Home Alone Sunday? I love this. There are two special ice cream experiences made the Hotels.com room service report this year. The first one is at the Plaza, made famous through the iconic movie Home Alone. And I'm sure you remember in that movie, Kevin McAllister goes nuts with the room service and orders a kid's dream of a Sunday featuring 16 scoops of ice cream and layers and layers of toppings. And the plaza is offering that on its room service menu for $300 well worth it to relive that Home Alone experience. And there's another ice cream experience on the list at the Four Seasons in Chicago. The ice cream man actually pushes his little ice cream cart right to the room. So uh, he'll come for a personal visit. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And the last one also made me laugh uh, because I know somebody really wants this. The Dog House Columbus Hotel in Columbus, Ohio. 
Uh, what what do they have in the rooms? And this isn't just room service. This is a feature of the rooms. Well, you have to love a hotel that also has a brewery in it. And that right. enables them to have in-room beer taps. And just to make sure you're having the full brewery experience, there is a mini fridge in the bathroom stocked with shower beer. I have had a shower beer. Have you, Do you know what a shower beer is, Pauline? I think I remember in high school hearing that if you washed your hair with beer, it would be very shiny. Is that what a shower beer is? You know, I remember that as well. But a shower beer <laughs> is the idea that you get a beer that's just large enough to be consumed while you're in the shower. And I didn't believe it until I tried it. But I'm telling you, the beer tastes better when you've been out in the heat. You jump, hop in the shower, drink a tiny beer. It's called a shower beer. Huh. Who knew? Well, you learn something new every day on the Fromer Travel Show. Thank you so much, Melanie. It's always such a delight speaking with you. It's a really fun project Hotels.com did, and it kind of makes me want to order room service. <laughs> And that's it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week.